Case 5, Camp of the Dog, Part 3, of John Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. John Silence by Algernon Blackwood. Case 5, Camp of the Dog, Part 3. So it came about that I stayed with our island party, putting off my second exploring trip from day to day, and I think that this far-fetched instinct to watch Sangree was really the cause of my postponement. For another ten days, the life of the camp pursued its even and delightful way, blessed by perfect summer weather, a good harvest of fish, fine winds for sailing, and calm starry nights. Maloney's selfish prayer had been favorably received. Nothing came to disturb or perplex, there was not even the prowling of night animals to vex the rest of Mrs. Maloney. For in previous camps, it had often been her peculiar affliction that she heard the porcupines scratching against the canvas or the squirrels dropping fir cones in the early morning with a sound of miniature thunder upon the roof of her tent. But on this island, there was not even a squirrel or a mouse. I think two toads and a small and harmless snake were the only living creatures that had been discovered during the whole of the first fortnight. And these two toads, in all probability, were not two toads, but one toad. Then suddenly came the terror that changed the whole aspect of the place, the devastating terror. It came at first gently, but from the very start it made me realize the unpleasant loneliness of our situation, our remote isolation in this wilderness of sea and rock and how the islands in this tideless Baltic Ocean lay about us like the advance guard of a vast besieging army. Its entry, as I say, was gentle, hardly noticeable, in fact, to most of us. Singularly undramatic it certainly was. But then in actual life, this is often the way the dreadful climaxes move upon us, leaving the heart undisturbed almost to the last minute, and then overwhelming it with a sudden rush of horror for it was the custom at breakfast to listen patiently while each in turn related the trivial adventures of the night, how they slept, whether the wind shook their tent, whether the spider on the ridge pole had moved, whether they had heard the toad, and so forth. And on this particular morning, Joan, in the middle of a little pause, made a truly novel announcement. In the night I heard the howling of a dog, she said, and then flushed up to the roots of her hair when we burst out laughing. For the idea of there being a dog on this forsaken island that was only able to support a snake and two toads was distinctly ludicrous, and I remember Maloney, halfway through his burnt porridge, capping the announcement by declaring that he had heard a Baltic turtle in the lagoon, and his wife's expression of frantic alarm before the laughter undeceived her. But the next morning Joan repeated the story with additional and convincing detail. Sounds of whining and growling woke me, she said and I distinctly heard sniffing under my tent and the scratching of paws. "'Oh, Timothy, can it be a porcupine?' exclaimed the boatswain's mate with distress, forgetting that Sweden was not Canada. But the girl's voice had sounded to me in quite another key, and looking up, I saw that her father and Sangree were staring at her hard. They, too, understood that she was in earnest, and had been struck by the serious note in her voice. "'Rubbish, Joan!' You are always dreaming something or other wild, her father said a little impatiently. There's not an animal of any size on the whole island, added Sangree, with a puzzled expression. 
he never took his eyes from her face. But there's nothing to prevent one swimming over, I put in briskly, for somehow a sense of uneasiness that was not pleasant had woven itself into the talk and pauses. A deer, for instance, might easily land in the night and take a look round. Or a bear, gasped the bosun's mate, with a look so portentous that we all welcomed the laugh. But Joan did not laugh. Instead, she sprang up and called us to follow. There, she said, pointing to the ground by her tent on the side farthest from her mother's. There are the marks close to my head. You can see for yourselves. We saw plainly. The moss and lichen, for earth there was hardly any, had been scratched up by paws. An animal about the size of a large dog it must have been to judge by the marks. We stood and stared in a row. Close to my head, repeated the girl, looking round at us. Her face, I noticed, was very pale, and her lips seemed to quiver for an instant. Then she gave a sudden gulp and burst into a flood of tears. The whole thing had come about in the brief space of a few minutes, and with a curious sense of inevitableness, moreover, as though it had all been carefully planned from all time and nothing could have stopped it. It had all been rehearsed before, had actually happened before, as the strange feeling sometimes has it, it seemed like the opening movement in some ominous drama, and that I knew exactly what would happen next. Something of great moment was impending. For this sinister sensation of coming disaster made itself felt from the very beginning, and an atmosphere of gloom and dismay pervaded the entire camp from that moment forward. I drew Sangree to one side and moved away, while Maloney took the distressed girl into her tent and his wife followed them, energetic and greatly flustered. For thus an undramatic fashion, it was that the terror I have spoken of first attempted the invasion of our camp, and, trivial and unimportant though it seemed, every little detail of this opening scene is photographed upon my mind with merciless accuracy and precision. It happened exactly as described. This was exactly the language used. I see it written before me in black and white. I see, too, the faces of all concerned with a sudden ugly signature of alarm where before had been peace. The terror had stretched out, so to speak, a first tentative feeler toward us, and had touched the hearts of each with a horrid directness. And from this moment the camp changed. Sangri, in particular, was visibly upset. He could not bear to see the girl distressed, and to hear her actually cry was almost more than he could stand. The feeling that he had no right to protect her hurt him keenly, and I could see that he was itching to do something to help, and liked him for it. His expression said plainly that he would tear in a thousand pieces anything that dared to injure a hair of her head. We lit our pipes and strolled over in silence to the men's quarters, and it was his odd Canadian expression, gee whiz, that drew my attention to a further discovery. The brute's been scratching round my tent too, he cried as he pointed the similar marks by the door, and I stooped down to examine them. We both stared in amazement for several minutes without speaking. Only I sleep like the dead, he added, straightening up again, and so heard nothing, I suppose. We traced the paw marks from the mouth of his tent in a direct line across to the girls, but nowhere else about the camp was there a sign of the strange visitor. The deer, dog, or whatever it was that had twice favored us with a visit in the night had confined its attentions to these two tents. And after all, there was really nothing out of the way about these visits of an unknown animal, for although our own island was destitute of life, 
we were in the heart of a wilderness, and the mainland and larger islands must be swarming with all kinds of four-footed creatures, and no very prolonged swimming was necessary to reach us. In any other country, it would not have caused a moment's interest, interest of the kind we felt, that is. In our Canadian camps, the bears were forever grunting about among the provision bags at night, porcupines scratching unceasingly, and chipmunks scuttling over everything. My daughter is overtired, and that's the truth of it, explained Maloney, presently when he had rejoined us and had examined in turn the other palm marks. She's been overdoing it lately, and camp life, you know, always means a great excitement to her. It's natural enough, if we take no notice, she'll be all right. He paused to borrow my tobacco pouch and fill his pipe, and the blundering way he filled it and spilled the precious weed on the ground visibly belied the calm of his easy language. You might take her out for a bit of fishing, Hubbard, like a good chap. She's hardly up to the long day in the cutter. Show her some of the other islands in your canoe, perhaps, eh? And by lunchtime the cloud had passed away as suddenly and as suspiciously as it had come. But in the canoe on our way home, having till then purposely ignored the subject uppermost in our minds, she suddenly spoke to me in a way that again touched the note of sinister alarm, the note that kept on sounding and sounding until finally John Silence came with his great vibrating presence and relieved it. Yes, and even after he came, too, for a while. I'm ashamed to ask it, she said abruptly, as she steered me home, her sleeves rolled up, her hair blowing in the wind, and ashamed of my silly tears, too, because I really can't make out what caused them. But, Mr. Hubbard, I want you to promise me not to go off for your long expeditions just yet. I beg it of you. She was so in earnest that she forgot the canoe, and the wind caught it sideways and made us roll dangerously. I have tried hard not to ask this, she added, bringing the canoe round again, but I simply can't help myself. It was a good deal to ask, and I suppose my hesitation was plain, for she went on before I could reply, and her beseeching expression and intensity of manner impressed me very forcibly. For another two weeks only... Mr. Sangree leaves in a fortnight, I said, seeing at once what she was driving at, but wondering if it was best to encourage her or not. If I knew you were to be on the island till then, she said, her face alternately pale and blushing, and her voice trembling a little, I should feel so much happier. I looked at her steadily, waiting for her to finish. And safer, she added almost in a whisper, especially at night, I mean. Safer, Joan, I repeated, thinking I had never seen her eyes so soft and tender. She nodded her head, keeping her gaze fixed on my face. It was really difficult to refuse, whatever my thoughts and judgment may have been, and somehow I understood that she spoke with good reason, though for the life of me I could not have put it into words. Happier and safer, she said gravely, the canoe giving a dangerous lurch as she leaned forward in her seat to catch my answer. Perhaps, after all, the wisest way was to grant her request and make light of it, easing her anxiety without too much encouraging its cause. All right, Joan, you queer creature, I promise. And the instant look of relief in her face, and the smile that came back like sunlight to her eyes, made me feel that, unknown to myself in the world, I was capable of considerable sacrifice after all. But you know there's nothing to be afraid of, I added sharply and she looked up in my face with a smile women use when they know we are talking idly, yet do not wish to tell us so. You don't feel afraid, I know, she observed quietly. 
Of course not. Why should I? So if you will just humor me this once, I, I will never ask anything foolish of you again as long as I live, she said gratefully. You have my promise, was all I could find to say. She headed the nose of the canoe for the lagoon lying a quarter of a mile ahead, and paddled swiftly, but a minute or two later she paused again and stared hard at me with a dripping paddle across the thwarts. You've not heard anything at night yourself, have you? she asked. I never hear anything at night, I replied shortly, from the moment I lie down till the moment I get up. That dismal howling, for instance, she went on, determined to get it out. Far away at first, and then getting closer, and stopping just outside the camp? Well, certainly not, because sometimes I think I almost dreamed it. Most likely you did, was my unsympathetic response. And you don't think father has heard it either then? No, he would have told me if he had. This seemed to relieve her mind a little. I know mother hasn't, she added, as if speaking to herself, for she hears nothing, ever. End of Case 5 Camp of the Dog Part 3